you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville-Glencarbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. My name is Carrie, and I'm going to be your scripture reader today. We're going to read about Noah. So if you would turn with me or scroll with me to Genesis chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 5 and read through 7, 11. So starting in Genesis chapter 6 with verse 5. And today we're reading out of the ESV, but your translation's fine too. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come to you and keep them to keep them alive in the ark. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send a rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth, And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day, of the month. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Carrie, for 
reading that for us. Just a nice, light, easy passage for today. Just God wiping out all of humanity. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Marcus. I'm one of our staff members here at Red Hill. Uh, currently, I oversee our college ministry, and today I get the privilege of preaching through the story of the flood. As you might have picked up from that passage, or if you're familiar with the passage at all, what we read is actually just a glimpse of the entirety of the story of the flood and the covenant that comes after it. So it spans about four chapters in Genesis. So we are not going to be even, there's so much meat that's going to be left on the bone from this passage. So we're going to try to cover a few key things from the passage. And if there are things that as I'm preaching or as you read through this on your own time that you really just want to dig into further, a great place to do that is in our gospel communities. Um, those are our small groups. Those are the ways that we do life together and we follow Jesus together. So I would encourage you to join one of those if you haven't already. I'm going to pray for us real quick as I prepare to preach, and then we will jump right in. Uh, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your love and for your justice. And I pray that as we read your word and as we hear from you and as I preach, that you would be honored and that you would be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so sometimes in life things just don't go well. Can I get an amen to that? When my wife and I bought our first home back in May, um, we knew that it was going to need a lot of updates. Um, it's an older home. It was built in... I think 1969, so it's well over 50 years old. Yeah, it's not, it's not, not a new house by any means. And when we bought it, we knew that it was going to need some updating. Uh, we knew that a couple of animals had left their marks on the carpet throughout the house, it hadn't been painted in quite some time, the kitchen didn't look super great, so we knew that there were some things that we were going to have to change. But in a, in a home that old, we were actually kind of surprised and happily surprised that the bathroom was relatively updated. We've got one full bath, and it's relatively updated, like the vanity had been painted recently, they had refinished or resurfaced the, the tub, they had actually painted the bathroom somewhat recently too, there was a new toilet in there, they had put new peel and stick flooring in, I'm like, wow, this is actually, okay, like this is, this is good for comparatively to the rest of the home, it was like the one bright spot, so we bought it in May, we moved in in June, and I think by July, the paint on the wall had started to peel, we're like, okay, we haven't really seen that before. And as it peeled, it revealed like wallpaper, like floral wallpaper behind it. We're like, okay, so they painted over wallpaper. That's super weird. And as we actually started to look through it further, it wasn't just wallpaper, but it was like floral paneling. And we're like, okay, this is not super great. And so we got a little ambitious one day. We wanted to see, like, we didn't want the floral paneling on there. And so we ripped the paneling off. And as we ripped the paneling off, we consequently ripped off, like, half of the drywall from the wall as well. So it was paint over paneling over drywall. So we thought this was a relatively nice bathroom. We get a month in, and we've got really just like mismatched drywall on there. Additionally, the toilet had started leaking. We found cracks in the flooring under the peel-and-stick flooring. And to top it all off, there was mold behind the drywall. So all that to say, we have a new bathroom now. We got it redone, and the point in that is we, there, there was no salvaging it. Pretty much everything that could have gone wrong with it went wrong with it. We had to strip it down to the studs. And that's exactly what God is doing here in the story of the flood. When God sends the flood over the earth, he is stripping creation down to the studs. And so in doing so, like I said earlier, we're going to leave a lot of meat on the bones here today. There's just so much within the story of the flood. I think we could preach it for like a month and still not even get to anything. So we're going to try to focus on how we see three of God's characteristics throughout the story of the flood. We're going to look at his justice. We're going to look at his mercy. 
And then we're also going to look at his covenantal love. And I just want to say on, on the front end of that, like these characteristics are intrinsic to God's being. They're not just part of who he is, but they are him. Like God in his fullness, he is just, he is merciful, and he is loving. And any concept that we have of those three things find their fullness in him. He is the most just, he is the most loving, and he is the most merciful. So the first characteristic that we see is God's justice. And as we think of God's justice, we can think of seeing this characteristic through the question of how did we get to where we are? If you go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 tells a story that is marked by good and by peace. And this is in stark contrast to the creation stories that existed in ancient Mesopotamia that all centered on war, they centered on power struggles, and they centered on chaos. But if you go back to Genesis 1.1, you see that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. God creates day and night, earth and the heavens, grass and the sun and the moon and the stars and the cattle and the crawling things to the birds of the heavens, and he calls them all good, and he creates them all without any sort of strife. And then we know that humanity enters the scene, and initially humanity is deemed very good. It is the crown jewel of God's creation. So in Genesis 1, we have good and very good, and in Genesis 3, we know that creation goes from good and very good to broken and sinful. Adam and Eve go from keeping the garden to being expelled from it. And then by Genesis 4, we've gone from good and very good to broken and sinful to just completely unraveling as the anger of Cain leads him to murder his brother Abel. So the seeds of sin that were just sowed in, in Genesis 3 are now revealing themselves in Genesis 4. And then we get to Genesis 6, and creation has gone from good and very good to broken to unraveling to totally corrupt and evil. That's a really quick jump to make in just the course of a few chapters. Raiden's been referencing Robert Alder's translation of Genesis, and I'll be referencing it a little bit and mixing in the ESV as well. But Robert Alder, he puts it this way of verse 5. He says, And the Lord saw that the evil of the human creature was great on the earth, and that every scheme of his heart's devising was only perpetually evil. Every scheme of the human heart was only perpetually evil. As I was reading through this, it took me a minute to kind of grasp the, the impact of this. I think because I spend way too much time online and I'm really conditioned to like clickbaity titles and headlines and all of that. And I'm, so I'm really used to hyperbole. And I just want to say there is no hyperbole in this. When, when the Bible says that every desire of man's heart was only perpetually evil, it's not hyperbole. It's true. This is the impact that sin has. This is the actual state of humanity. Sin, it's not cute. Sin isn't something to be played with. But sin rather wants to control every single aspect of our lives. And whenever sin reigns, this is what happens. The natural outpouring excuse me, the natural course of sin in the world is to lead to total and only perpetually evil all the time. So it's a grim scene. It's not a great state for humanity. And in verses 6 and 7, we see that the Lord regrets having made human on the earth, and he is grieved to his heart. The Lord said, I will wipe out the human race that I have created from the face of the earth, from human to, to cattle, to crawling thing, to the birds of the heavens, for I regret that I have made him. The very thing that he once deemed good just a few chapters ago in Genesis 1, he now regrets having made them. And that's something that we have to wrestle with. We have to wrestle with the fact that God regrets. 
Because if you've been around Christianity or you have any sort of orthodox belief in who God is, it's pretty common that we believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever as the author of Hebrews tells us. So if God is the same throughout all the ages, how is it that he can regret doing something? Has God changed his mind? That's something that we have to wrestle with. And I think two things are really important to note. One is that this was originally probably orally told in the Hebrew language and then recorded in Hebrew and then recorded in Greek and then translated into English eventually over the course of thousands of years. So there's things that we miss in translation. This wasn't written to 21st century Americans. It's written for us, yes, but it wasn't written directly to us or in our language. So as we bridge some of these gaps here, we have to understand that the, the Hebrew word that is used here for regret is actually probably better translate through the phrase feeling sorry. Um, another place that we see this throughout the Bible is in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, uh, Saul is made king of Israel, and eventually he gets to a point where he just continually disobeys the commands of the Lord, and so the Lord regrets Saul. And in 1 Samuel verse 11, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11, it, this is the Lord speaking. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So again, we see that the Lord regrets and then interestingly enough, so as to clue us in as to what he means, the author of 1 Samuel in verse 29 tells us, it says, And the glory of Israel, notice that that's capitalized, that's referring to the Lord. And the Lord will not have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Well, what the heck do we do with that? <laughs> verse 11 says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Verse 29 says, the Lord cannot regret, for he is not a man. I like the way that John Piper puts this. John Piper says, in reference in this, he says, the way of the Lord's regretting in verse 11 is not the way a human would. The difference would most naturally be that God's regret happens in spite of perfect foreknowledge, while most human repentance happens because we lack foreknowledge. So, in other words, uh, when God regrets, he feels sorry or he laments that people disobeys him, that people disobey him. He knows the, sin, he knows the extent of, of the depravity that sin creates within us. And he wants us to obey him freely and lovingly and to follow his commandments because his commandments are life for us. They are good for us. And when we don't, it grieves him. He laments or he feels sorry because he knows that our best life isn't in, isn't in sin, but it's found pursuing him. I think this is, if it's not clear, that the best example that I could think of on a, on a personal note, which again, we're trying to, wrestle with the emotions of God and put them in human terms. Um, so it's a difficult thing to do, and I don't think we can do it perfectly. But an example that I, I've thought of is, have you ever lost a friend because you confronted them about something? Like an appropriate confrontation. So hypothetical example, you have a friend who's doing something harmful, and you see that they're doing something harmful, and out of your love for that, you step in to help them, and when you step in to try and help them, they reject you, and ultimately the friendship ends. You didn't do anything wrong in this situation, so you don't have any regret in that regard. You don't have any regret that you pursued them, that you were trying to help them, but you regret that they acted the way that they did in the first place, that they got themselves into this situation, and also that when you went to help, they didn't want help. I think that's really what the heart behind the Lord regretting here refers to. He laments that humanity has reached the point that it has. But again, we're talking about God's justice currently. Because he is just, there has to be consequences to what humanity has done. 
So accordingly, he makes a plan to right what is wrong. And that's where we're introduced to Noah in verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The entirety of the human population is referred to as only perpetually evil all the time. They are purely wicked. And yet there is one righteous man throughout the generation. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and he walked with God. Other translations might say that Noah pleased God. He's the one man in all creation who pleased God. I want to say this. Our sin has consequences. We see this, and if you jump down to verse 18, everything that is on the earth shall die. Again, this isn't hyperbole. We're not going to read through all of chapter 7 and chapter 8 because, again, we would probably be here till like 3 o'clock if we were trying to preach through all of that. But it's not hyperbole. Everything actually dies. Everything that isn't on the ark perishes. Human and otherwise perishes. So our sin has consequences. That's a direct consequence of the fall and of man's wickedness. But I also want to say that our good deeds have consequences. The latter part of verse 18 leading into verse 19 says, I will establish my covenant with you. This is the Lord talking to Noah. I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Notice Noah's family isn't deemed righteous. It's just Noah. Noah is the only one who is deemed righteous. But because of his righteousness, his family gets to live. Does that sound familiar? Do you see any typology there? Does that remind you of anybody? Have you considered the ripple effect of your actions? Have you considered the impact of the things that you do by faith? Have you considered the impact that that has on your family? Just as Noah, in his righteousness and in his faithfulness to the Lord, was able to save his family, I firmly believe that in our faithfulness to the Lord, if we pray that God would save people and he would change people's hearts, that if we pray and we believe and we pursue him, that he will answer our prayers and believe us and grant us those things. Have you also considered that the things that you do, if you're like Saul, if you are living in disobedience to the Lord, have you considered that those things have negative impacts, not just on yourself, but on the people around you as well? I want, to, I want to say this too, that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Paul tells us that in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ and you are living in sin, there is no reason for shame and guilt to reign in your life when you can just, you can repent, you can acknowledge to the Lord that what you have done is wrong and you can pursue community, invite other people into it, and you can live without guilt and shame because all the guilt and shame in the world has been nailed to the cross. We don't have to live that way. We have freedom in Christ. And while that's true, there are still consequences for actions. So have you considered the consequences of your actions, both good and bad? God is too just to let evil go unpunished. If you flip over to 1 Peter 3.18, I just want to stay on the front end. This is a really weird passage, and we're not even going to like scratch the surface of this. We're just going to kind of cherry, honestly, we're just going to cherry pick it for one, one specific thing. Uh, Peter's talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness, and he transitions into talking about Christ, and he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I'm not even going to try to act like I completely know what that means, the fact that Jesus went and preached to spirits in prison, but what we do know, just generally, 
is that those who disobeyed the Lord prior to the days of Noah, so those prior in verses, if you were to read verses 1 through 4 of Genesis 6, this is directly who that's referring to, those there who disobeyed the Lord are punished by Jesus as he as he's put to death on the cross and alive in the spirit, something happens in which he goes and condemns those who were not a part of the flood. All of that to say, just know that God is just and he condemns those who are wicked. God is too just to let evil go unpunished. Sin and disobedience don't go unpunished. And at the same time, righteousness and obedience don't go unnoticed. So in the same way that our negative actions, the things that we do to disobey God have consequences and God will rightly judge those, so too will the things that we do out of faith and in righteousness to the Lord, those will be rightly judged as well. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Give me a second to get there. There you go, Second Peter. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, Peter's, he's talking about false prophet and teachers, and, and he transitions into talking about this. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. I'm going to pause there and say, I think that partially references back to what he's talking about in First Peter, so maybe that helps give us a little bit of clarity there. If he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the world, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And here, here's the main point of all of that. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So again, as a summary, fallen angels are condemned and the people of Noah's day are condemned, but Noah, the righteous one, is preserved. Sodom and Gomorrah, two wicked cities, they are both condemned, but Lot, the one righteous man in all of those cities, is preserved. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Maybe you're wondering, who is, who's the unrighteous? If you're anything like me, um, especially this, this last week, I, <laughs> I had a rough week this week, and I did some things this week that I'm not super proud of. I didn't treat people super well. I let my anger get the best of me, and there was a lot of condemnation just in my own mind and my own heart this week, and I was just thinking, like, I, as I was reading this, I'm like, I'm not righteous. I, I can't be righteous, not with the way that I've acted this week. But Romans 5.19 tells us that we are the righteousness of God because of Christ Jesus. And so those who are in Christ have had their sins wiped away. And now, even in this moment, regardless of how you feel about yourself, regardless of what you've done this last week or what you're going to do in the week to come, if you are in Christ, you are and permanently will be in right standing with him and will be saved from his wrath. Additionally, because of that, we can trust that the Lord will keep us safe from all trials. And consequently, those who aren't in the Lord will be punished. Justice will be enacted at the end of the ages when the Lord comes back and he takes those with him who love him and those who are not in him will be left. So I want to say if any of us here are in the midst of a trial, whatever that looks like for you, I would just want to remind you that God sees you. 
God hasn't forgotten you. And in the same way that Noah and Lot were righteous men preserved in their, in their age, so too will those of us who are in Christ Jesus be preserved regardless of what we go through. Because God is just. Additionally, we see that God is merciful. Uh, for me, I, I, it's silly, but I get confused on the definitions between mercy and grace. So the way that I, that I think about it is God, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. So maybe an example of that. Mercy is whenever I run a stop sign on SIUE's campus because there's cops everywhere and I never want to obey the stop signs there. I run a stop sign, the cop pulls me over and he says, hey, I'm going to let you off with a warning. I deserved a ticket because I ran the stop sign, but he shows me mercy and he lets me off with a warning. Grace is whenever I have a paper due and I don't submit it on time, and I email the professor, and I say, hey, sorry, I didn't submit this on time. Can I turn it in late and not get any points deducted? And the professor says, yes. <laughs> I messed up. I deserve to get the late grade, but he shows me grace, and he gives me full credit for the paper. So we're talking, so all that to say, just to clarify, we're talking about mercy. We're talking about not getting the, the ticket when we deserve to get the ticket. And so you might be thinking to yourself, as we're talking about the flood, um, how the heck is this merciful? <laughs> Literally all of creation dies. Like, I, there's no hyperbolic language. There's nothing that I can do to, to emphasize it enough. Literally everything on the face of the earth that was not in the ark that Noah constructed dies. There's, there's no concept for it. I, I don't know how else to explain it other than there's nothing left. So we're not going to be able to get into all the details of, of chapter 6 through 8 like, like I talked about. We read a little bit of it. But maybe just a couple key points. Um, the, the ark that Noah built was 450 foot by 75 foot by 45 foot high. So just basically think of like a four-story football field. That's kind of what it was, except a little bit bigger. The flood, Noah builds, builds the ark. The flood lasts 40 days. There's a total of 150 days in which water is on the earth. There's a total of another 150 days in which the water resides from the earth. And then there's, or rescinds from the earth, sorry. And then it takes another 70 days for the earth to completely dry out. So Noah and all of the animals, Noah, his family, and all the animals that he brought onto the ark are on there for 370 days in total, while the rest of creation, you know, perishes. So how on earth is this merciful? Well, I think we have to, we have to look at the narrative, and we have to understand where we've come from, and we have to also have a little bit of foresight into where we potentially would have been going. We have to understand that humanity would have continued on in a world filled with perpetual evil had God not done something to fix it. Nothing was going to change. If just in the course of a few short hundred years, we went from Adam and Eve, perfection in the garden, to sin in the garden, to their offspring murdering each other, to creation being only perpetually evil all the time, where do we think that's going to end up? Contrary to what most of the world likes to believe today, there is nothing good inside of us that we can muster up to fix our brokenness. The problem with the world and with all the brokenness that we see isn't out there, but it's within us because we are broken and we are sinful and we are completely and utterly dependent on the Lord to change us. And the same is true for Noah and his generation. So nothing's really changed in that regard. So nothing was going to change unless the Lord does something. But I love this, that all change Things do change, thankfully, praise God. And all the change that happens is sparked by what Noah does after he gets off the ark. 
So if you start in verse 20, Genesis 8, verse 20, it says, Then Noah, after he gets off the ark, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, notice that once his heart was grieved, but now his heart is pleased because of the sacrifice. The Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. And while the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I want to point out too there that this, we have to remember this, this was written back in like ancient Mesopotamian times, right? So it's not written to our culture. And just as Genesis 1, the creation story, is written in the context of other creation stories being centered on war and peace and chaos, there are numerous other societies and cultures in this time that had flood, flood accounts. So it's, it's not just a Christian thing that we have a recording of the flood. Other cultures had a recording of the flood. And other cultures had recordings of a sacrifice after the flood that pleased the gods. But here's what's interesting. In all the other accounts, the gods eat of the sacrifice that their people make. And not just because they wanted to, but there, there, there's language within that that makes it seem like those gods needed that sacrifice. God doesn't need this sacrifice. He doesn't eat of it. He's not dependent on it. But it does please him. And in the same way that back in Genesis 3, the Lord sacrifices an animal so that Adam and Eve could be clothed, so does Noah sacrifice some of the animals in order to soothe the Lord's anger towards humanity. So within this promise that the Lord makes, he promises never to deluge the earth again, to never flood it. Humanity, hey, if y'all are ever wondering if like, we're ever going to see a flood like this ever again, you got evidence right here, it's not happening again. So regardless of whatever else happens in the world, we know we ain't getting flooded like that. So I guess take that for what you will. As part of that, and I think this is really interesting, as part of the Lord never promising never to do this ever again, he fundamentally changes the earth and the way things function. This part's just kind of fun to me. Like, I think it's valid and it's important, but there's also some fun things. There's a lot more here that we could go into. This is part of the meat that's being left on the bone. But, but here's a couple of things that, that I think are important to note is that prior to the flood, the earth functions completely differently to the way that it functions today. So this is what we understand from 8.22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There's, a, there's, a, there's language of like repetition and normality within here. There's, while the earth remains, there's going to be seed time and there's going to be harvest. There's going to be times of cold and there's going to be times of heat. We'll have summer and we'll have winter. We'll have seasons. We'll have days and nights that function on 24-hour periods. It'll be a regular functioning ecosystem and it won't stop. So part of what's intrinsic to this is that the natural elements of the earth have their powers dramatically curbed after the flood. This is seen in that uh, cyclical nature of it all. And also, I just want to say, there's a lot of debate about, like, whether this was a global flood or a local flood, and I, I'm not going to get into that. I don't think that's entirely important here. Um, but, and there's also a lot of debate about, like, the total timeline about what year that this occurred in. But there's some things that we know, just like, I want to get this word right, geologically, like, just the study, from looking at geology, there's some things that we know. And so in the transition of the Mesozoic era, which was like 
250 million to 60 million BC, to the Cenozoic era, which is like 60 million BC to the current period, so you know, a pretty modern era. A couple key things can be recorded as happening. One, Pangaea begins to break up. The various mountain ranges, like the Alps or the Pyrenees, begin to form on the Earth. And then additionally, temperatures over the change between the transition of these two eras, temperatures cool off drastically over the, over the face of the Earth. And a lot of people believe that this is what contributed to the Ice Age and consequently the extinction of a lot of prehistoric animals and plants. So again, there's a lot of things within that, but all that we need to know is that there's some belief that the flood probably occurred somewhere within here and not just occurred somewhere within here, but was actually consequential to the transition away from the previous period into the modern period. And that part of the reason why the earth functions differently and looks differently is because the impact that the flood had. So not only is the earth completely different, but humanity changes as well. If you were to go back to Genesis 5, we skipped Genesis 5, sorry, it's just a lot of genealogy. Um, you'll notice that a lot of the people in there lived upwards of 5, 6, 7, 8, even upwards of 900 years. At the beginning of Genesis 6, the Lord says, hey, that's going to be capped at like 120 years. So the lifespan of humanity changes. In chapter, in chapter 9, verse 2, we see that animals now fear hum humanity, which is a wonderful thing because a traditional reading of the Genesis account reads that prior to the fall, and prior to this account, this, the flood here, is that humanity was probably um, herbivores, probably just ate plants, and, or vegetarians, sorry, not herbivores. Um, <laughs> same thing, right? We were probably just vegetarians. We didn't eat of the animals. We had a different relationship with animals. But now animals fear humanity, which means, and I better get a hearty amen to this, we can eat animals. Thank you, God, for steak. And for beef and for chicken. We love it so much. So the, the relationship between animals and humanity changes. Additionally, in verses 5 and 6, we see that the death penalty is instituted and human life is safeguarded by that. So if there is like the concept of an eye for an eye, life for a life, that is instituted here so as to protect humanity from themselves. In a, in a creation that was just only perpetually evil and people were just murdering each other, the institution of a death penalty is necessary for the safeguarding of human life. Herman Bovink put, puts it this way, he says, a humanity now appears post-flood that by comparison with the preceding one is much gentler in nature, diminished in power, and of a much shorter lifespan. So the earth fundamentally changes. Again, this is one of the things I can't wrap my mind around. I don't, it's like, I can't look outside and think, oh yeah, I bet this world would be crazy if it was infinitely more powerful. Like we just, we don't have a concept of that. And humanity changes. Humanity is much gentler, they live shorter, they have less power, but you'll notice that one thing does not change about humanity. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 21, it says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So this is when the Lord is making his covenant with Noah. And you would think that, so the root of everything bad that just happened is that man's heart is evil. If I'm God, I'm saying, okay, let's wipe this out. Let's start fresh, and then let's change man's heart so that this doesn't happen again. But that's not what God does. He acknowledges that man's heart is only evil from his youth, but he's not going to change it. This really bugged me this week. I'm like, why the heck would he not change it? Because think about it. God creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. He is perfectly satisfied within himself, yet he chooses to put forth creation, not just the earth, but all of the solar system, he creates, having no need for it. 
He creates, and he, obviously, because he is good, he is perfect, he is just, merciful, loving, he creates a creation that is good and very good. Just so we can mess it up. And then, in his mercy and in his grace, he spares humanity and he removes us from the garden because a broken and sinful humanity cannot stand in the presence of God without a mediator. Look at it throughout the Bible. People die when that happens. So, humanity, Adam and Eve, they're kicked out of the garden, mercifully so. The pains of sin increase in the world. Cain murders Abel. Creation reaches a point of only perpetually evil all the time ever. So, God, in his justice, he wipes out the wicked. He starts over, and he changes humanity's hearts. No, he doesn't change humanity's hearts. He literally changed the way the world works, which, again, like, snap of the finger, okay, the world's going to work different. But the root of our problem doesn't go away. This is asinine. This is absurd. Why would God not change our hearts, but change everything else? And why would God keep going? Why would he continue to partner with humanity? When we talk about covenants, we're talking about God partnering with humanity. And I think we have to remember that as Paul tells us in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came in the fullness of time. Additionally, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient. We're not God. God's timeline, God's plans, God's purposes are different than ours. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So, accordingly, because we're not God, and because what he tells us here in Isaiah is, you have no idea how I function, other than what I slightly reveal to you through my word. We have to look at the story through a biblical narrative. We have to look at the story of the flood through a biblical narrative. We can't look at it through a historical narrative. There's things to be gleaned from there, but if you're only looking at it through a historical narrative, you're going to miss out on the main point. You can't look at it through a pragmatic lens or a humanistic lens or even any sort of secular lens. You have to look at it through the biblical narrative because according to the biblical narrative, this covenant is the first of four covenants that the Lord will make with his people. And we're going to breeze through these. The first one is the Noahic covenant, or the covenant with Noah, also called the covenant of, with nature. And he promises, like we just read, that he'll never wipe out all of creation ever again with a flood. So that's the first covenant that he makes. There's nothing that Noah has to do within this, by the way. Because if a covenant's a partnership, typically if you're partnering with someone, it's like, hey, I'll do this and you do this. And it's like, hey, cool. This is like an open-handed covenant, if you will, because there's no other hand to shake. It's just God agreeing to do something. And then he makes a covenant with Abraham and he promises to bless Abraham and let him be a blessing to all the families of the earth if he is obedient to God. So we see there's, there's mutuality in here. And you also see that the seeds are planted for all of creation to be reconciled to God through this covenant. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Paul tells us in Romans 4, 3 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And in the same way that that is true, it is also true that whoever believes in the Son will not perish, but will have eternal life. So Abraham, he's the forefather of our faith. This is the point of this first covenant. But before we can get to whoever believes in the Son will not perish, 
We have to go from the Noahic covenant to the covenant with Abraham to the covenant that he makes with Israel. And we have to understand that before salvation can come to those who are outside of the Israeli family, that salvation has to start with Israel. And that's the point of this covenant. God promises to bless Israel and make them a light to the world if they obey the laws that he gives them. This is also referred to as the Mosaic covenant. So we have a covenant with Noah. He's not going to wipe things out. I have a covenant with Abraham. He's going to bless all the families of the earth. He has a covenant with Israel that you are going to be my chosen people. And then lastly, the last covenant we see is the covenant with David. This is the covenant that God says, I will establish my throne forever from someone from your lineage. And that is perfectly and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who inaugurates not only the Davidic covenant, but he inaugurates a new covenant. Each one of these covenants in the Old Testament, the one with Noah, the one with Abraham, the one with Israel, the one with David, they all build up to the new covenant. Because if you know anything about biblical history, and if you don't, that's fine. Every single one of the covenants that God makes with his people is broken. Not because God does anything wrong, but it's because we are broken people and we cannot perfectly serve God and we cannot partner with him without messing things up because we are broken. And this is why we need a new covenant. Jesus, on the night before he is betrayed in Luke twenty two twenty during the Last Supper, he tells his disciples that this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so just as when blood was shed, when Noah sacrificed the animals after coming off the ark, and he soothed the Lord's anger with that sacrifice, so too has the blood of, so too has the blood of Christ poured out on the cross, soothed the Lord's wrath for all who believe in him. And so in this new covenant, for all who believe in Jesus, the law of God will be written on our hearts. We will no longer need animal sacrifices. This is why we don't sacrifice to animals still today, because if Jesus never comes, the only way we can get right with God is through animal sacrifice. But Jesus comes, and he fulfills that, and he provides a new and better way for us to be right with God permanently. Because not only are we right with him through his sacrifice, but he restores us, he regenerates us, and he makes us more into his image. God stepped down into our mess, shed his own blood, and died for us because we couldn't save ourselves. So again, we come back to the question, why does God keep going? Why does God persevere with humanity over thousands of years in their brokenness and their rebellion from him? I think the answer is this. I think he keeps going because the flood and the covenant he makes with Noah is the first in the line of many that will ultimately result in people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue from all over the face of the earth, from throughout all the ages of the earth, repenting of their wickedness, believing in a risen Savior Jesus and worshiping him forever and ever. And we don't get to that point unless the flood happens. Unless God wipes out all of humanity, we don't get to a point where everyone from every tribe, nation, and tongue, not just people who are Israeli in, in we're not just born in Israel, but anybody here today can worship Jesus fully by repenting in him and or repenting and believing in him. And you don't get there unless thousands or millions of people die in a flood. That's a really difficult truth to wrestle with. But God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And we don't have to, we can work through that. It's helpful to work through that, but ultimately we just have to take him at his word. So in conclusion, I want to reference Matthew 24 and read from it. Anytime we can let scripture interpret scripture, it's a, it's a good idea. Uh, prevents us from having to do too much work and helps us give the right answer, more importantly. 
So Matthew 24, starting in verse 36, Jesus is talking about the coming end of the age. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. And he says, concerning that day and hour, the day and the hour when heaven and earth will pass away, concerning that day and hour, nobody knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Nobody had any idea the flood was coming. The single most catastrophic event in all of human history, and nobody knew it was coming except for Noah. People were living their normal lives. Some of y'all are going to go out to lunch after this, and then you're going to go home, and you're going to take a nap, and you're going to go to GC, and you're going to wake up tomorrow, and you're going to go to work. Unless the Lord comes back. And then you're not. And that's exactly what people were doing in the day of Noah. Yes, they were wicked, but they, were, they had no idea. There was no indication that the Lord was going to do this. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were working. Jesus says the day that he returns can come at any moment. Are you ready for that day? Because when that day comes, it's going to be a glorious day for those of us who are in Christ. And only those who have placed their faith in Jesus will be taken with him. The rest of us, those who are, who are here and haven't put their faith in Jesus, you will have to deal with the fullness of God's wrath. Those of us who are in Christ, we have a perfect mediator. We have one who makes us right before the Lord and we never have to deal with his wrath ever again. But if you are not in Christ, a day is coming when you will have to deal with the wrath of God. And I want to say this, that faith is the dividing line between mercy and judgment. Faith is what determines if you get to live in the covenantal love of God or if you're left exposed to his wrath. Because make no mistake, everyone's going to be judged. God is just. He's not just just to the wicked, but he's just to the, just to the righteous. And faith is the dividing line between mercy and eternal damnation. Faith comes through partaking in the new covenant and believing in Jesus. Are you ready for that day? Would you bow your heads? And take a moment to reflect. Which side of that line are you on? Are you safe from the wrath of God? And are you free to live in his covenantal love? Or if the end of the age came today, would you have to face his wrath? This isn't an easy thing to talk about, and I, and I don't want to come off trite or rude, but I just want to say God loves you. Like if you're here and you haven't placed your faith in him, 
it's not too late. You can live a life that is marked by love and freedom. You don't have to live in sin. You don't have to live with the things that weigh you down and make you feel like you are worthless, but instead you can place your faith in him and give your heart to him and he will regenerate you and he will make you more and more into his image until the day that he calls you home. So I'm, I'm pleading with you. If you haven't placed your faith in him this morning, will you do it today? Take a minute to process these things. As we transition into a time of response, I'd encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to take the Lord's Supper, remembering what Jesus did for you on the cross and where that means that you now stand in relation to the Father. And if you're not a believer, I would ask you to not take this meal but instead to watch and to ask, some, ask somebody who does it why they're doing it. Faith is the dividing line between mercy and judgment. It isn't, if you aren't in Christ, it is not too late to give your life to him. I'll be over on the side available to pray with anybody who wants to. And when you are ready, you can come and take of the Lord's Supper and prepare to continue worshiping in him. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.